Tonight we gather to prepare our hearts so as properly to be able to go to our Savior's table, Lord willing, tomorrow. Mindful of this, and mindful also of the fact that the Lord's Supper has come in the place of the Old Testament Passover, let us open God's holy word together at Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, Concerning the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, even these are my feasts. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work therein. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. These are the feasts of the Lord, even holy convocations, which you shall proclaim in their seasons, in the fourteenth day of the first month, at evening, is the Lord's Passover. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. In the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work on it, but you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work on it. And then in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 1. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles or the heathen, that someone should have his father's wife. But you are puffed up, and you have not rather mourned, so that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily, as absent in the body, but present in the Spirit, have judged already, as though I were present, concerning him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, and with my Spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven keeps on leavening the whole lump. Therefore, 
Purge out the old leaven, so that you may become a new lump, as you are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I did write to you in an epistle not to associate with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters, for then you must needs go out of the world But now I have written to you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such a one know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are outside. Why do you not judge those that are inside? But those that are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. May God uh, seal his holy word our hearts. Now in Leviticus chapter 23, a very important chapter, we find God speaking to Moses to instruct God's ancient people, the people of Israel, that they first and foremost needed to keep the weekly Sabbath. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, concerning the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. First of all, the weekly feast, the weekly Sabbath. Verse 3, Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it, It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all of your dwellings. But then from verse 4, God, through Moses, goes on to instruct the people of Israel how they were to keep the annual feasts, not the weekly feast of the Sabbath. And uh, these are set out, first of all, the Passover, then the Feast of Pentecost, and then the feast of um, um, the feast uh, in the seventh month, uh, the Jubilee feast, and then finally the feast of booths or tabernacles. Four feasts, each of which occurred uh, four times in the Hebrew year. We can almost say seasonal feasts, a spring feast, a summer feast, uh, a fall feast, 
and a winter feast. Now the one we want to look at tonight is the first of these annual feasts, namely the feast of the Passover. And the first one mentioned uh, is detailed in Leviticus chapter 23 verse 5. In the fourteenth day of the first month, at evening, is the Lord's Passover. At the time of the Exodus, the Hebrew year began in the first month. Not our January, but actually, more likely, our April, uh, the Feast of Nisan, or Aviv, as they call it in Hebrew. And exactly two weeks after the commencement of the Hebrew New Year came the first feast in the 14th day of the first month at evening was the Lord's Passover. It was held every year uh, if a person had polluted themselves uh, deliberately or accidentally then they were to refrain from that feast uh, if someone had a bereavement immediately before the Passover we read in Numbers chapter 9, then that person, who of course would be touching the corpse of the dead relative, would be ceremonially unclean for a whole week. And he was therefore not in a condition, even though he had done no wrong, uh, to partake of the Passover. In such a situation, uh, God arranged through Moses that that person would be given the Passover approximately one month later. How much more was the uh, need to abstain from the Passover if one of God's people had deliberately um, done something very wrong, had centrally transgressed one of the Ten Commandments? Then he was to abstain from the Passover for that year. We're told later in the time of uh, the godly King Hezekiah uh, that um, many, if not most, of the Hebrew leaders, even the Levites themselves, the priests according to the order of Levi, had become unclean. And so Hezekiah uh, suggested uh, and managed to get all of the people and the Levites to agree to postpone the Passover until such time as the Levites and the people uh, who brought gifts to the Levites, had gotten their act together, had ceremonially cleansed themselves before the Lord before they were to come to the Passover table. And we see something similar of the solemnity of this feast detailed in Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 5 and onward. In the fourteenth day of the first month at evening, is the Lord's Passover. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. Seven days you are to eat the unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work on it, but you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work on it. 
This was a very important annual feast of the Hebrews. The Passover followed immediately by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Frankly, it is one feast in two segments. The thought is that at the beginning of the feast, God's people were to cleanse themselves. They were to humble themselves before Jehovah, and they were to see to it that by God's grace, especially the next week, all seven days, they were to do all that they could to refrain from sinning, so that at the end of that feast, time of great joy, uh, they could come to the Lord with clean hands, or perhaps better, with cleansed hands. Now it is on the basis of this that many of the Reformed churches, especially the Dutch Reformed churches, to this day have their preparation feast uh, to the Lord's Supper, which has replaced the Passover at Calvary and after Calvary, uh, the preparation uh, service for the Lord's Supper is usually held uh, on the Sunday before the Sunday on which the action service is held. This then gives God's people adequate warning during the whole week to humble themselves before the Lord and to make matters right with God so that when they come to the feast, they do so with cleansed hands. If you look at the Evangelifish Church today, Evangelifish Church today, you'll find that the Lord's table has become a free-for-all, a smorgasbord for whomsoever will, often for whomsoever will rather than whomsoever believeth. Uh, the most sessions make little or no attempt whatsoever to guard the sanctity of the holy table from abuse. In fact, I've been in many churches, and some of them Presbyterian churches, when every stray traveler or vagrant that has uh, drifted into the church uh, on a communion Sunday is heartily welcomed to the Lord's table with no questions asked. This is not the way in which the Passover was ever held. Indeed, if you look at, Levitic, uh, at uh, Exodus chapter 12, you will see that after the most detailed instructions were given to God's ancient people at the very time of the institution of the Passover, it says at the end of that chapter, uh, from Exodus uh, chapter 12, verses 44 to 48, that if a stranger, uh, if someone who was passing through, desired to partake of the Passover, then he had to meet a number of conditions. The first was he needed to have been circumcised. The notion that we should ever invite unbaptized people who honk twice and allege that they love Jesus to our Savior's table is bizarre in the light of the fact that the, that the Passover, uh, the forerunner of the Lord's table, required participants, first of all, to be baptized, but not only that. Secondly, they had to be brought near to the... Uh, to the table, and that is a technical term in the Hebrew uh, derived from the word karov, which means to bring, uh, to bring close to, generally in the, the hifil, uh, hikrib. The thought is that the person who wished to fellowship at the Passover table, provided he was circumcised, and provided every male member of his family right down to the tenderest infants, had also been circumcised, 
then the adult that desired to partake of the Passover table was to be catechized. Uh, he was to be shown the way before he was to be brought close to the table. And then thirdly, the statement is made quite categorically that uh, no uncircumcised person was to be permitted to partake of the, uh, the holy table. In the light of that, uh, we see why it is so important for us to prepare our hearts to come to the holy table, lest we should eat and drink a judgment over ourselves. Hence the idea of a preparatory uh, service, uh, which it is your practice, at least today, to have the day before the Lord's Supper, and which it has been my practice many years ago, until I went to, came to the United States and then to Australia, to have the preparation service one week before the action service so that God's people have adequate time to prepare themselves as per Leviticus chapter 23. On this point, let me just add, if you look at Acts chapter 20, uh, you will find that Paul and his party uh, had arrived in Philippi. Uh, then a few of them, with Paul, uh, went further to Troas, whereas the rest of the party remained behind in Philippi during the days of the unleavened bread. An extremely important statement. Then we're told in Acts chapter 20, verses 6 and 7, that on the first day of the week, when the congregation had gathered together to break bread, Paul preached for them. And I think it's very important that we see uh, that the Lord's Supper uh, was held uh, in Troas uh, precisely at the end of the days of the unleavened bread. In other words, held it in exactly the same way in the same time of the year as was the old Hebrew Passover, uh, which, of course, was the forerunner of the Lord's Supper. And uh, I would suggest, even though it's not specifically stated there, that those of Paul's party um, who um, only arrived later uh, in uh, Troas were using that week of the unleavened bread to prepare their hearts so that, expecting the Lord's Supper to be celebrated the next week, they could come to the holy table with cleansed hearts. I'll try and develop this theme a little further as we go further. Well now, back to Leviticus chapter 23. On the fourteenth day of the first month, we read in verse 5, at evening is the Lord's Passover. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the feast of the unleavened bread to the Lord. Seven days you are to eat unleavened bread. Why? Why was it important to eat unleavened bread? You may say, well, because it pleased God ritually and ceremonially uh, to require his ancient people uh, just for this one week in the year not to put yeast in their bread. Uh, but uh, to have unleavened bread, uh, which to this day the Hebrew people call matzah. Uh, but I would suggest there's a much more important reason for that. 
Um, usually, though not always, in the Bible, yeast is very frequently a symbol of sin. Yeast that works through and uh, pollutes matters. Uh, and so it was very important for the Hebrew people for a week long during this feast uh, to eat only that bread that had no yeast in it, which was usually regarded as a symbol of pollution. This would then remind God's ancient people that their lives were to be especially unpolluted during that week as they prepared for the Passover table. Uh, every time they ate the matzah, which perhaps didn't taste quite as good as does bread with yeast in it, they were to be reminded that they needed to fasten their souls, to starve themselves of the flippancy with which uh, any person uh, often commits sin needlessly. They were to be specially careful during that week to see to it that they did not pollute themselves before coming to God's table. And I would suggest that the unleavened bread reminded them to live in that specially holy way. This will become clearer when we go to the passage in Corinthians, which uh, I previously uh, read. And then in verse 8, it says, But you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord seven days. So there were two things they had to do. Negatively, they were to refrain from anything with yeast in it during that week. Positively, however, they were to bring a special offering, a special thank offering uh, to the Lord, and one that had been made with fire. These fire offerings generally consumed uh, the gift, whether of grain or of roast meat or whatever that was brought to the Lord, so that it was costly. It cost God's people something during the week of that feast. Uh, to bring something to God and to give it to him. And then on the seventh day, uh, there was a holy convocation, you shall do no servile work in it. So much then, according to Leviticus 23, that first of the annual feasts known as the Passover. Then secondly, though we will not read it now, uh, Moses goes on to deal with the second annual feast, approximately one season in the year later, the, uh, the uh, Feast of Pentecost. And then he goes on a, a little later to deal with the third feast, uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, on the tenth day of the seventh month, mentioned in verse 27. And then finally, uh, a little later toward the end of the Hebrew year, the fourth feast, uh, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. And I think it's very interesting to see that the Hebrew calendar given by God to the Hebrew people had these four annual feasts. To be sure, there was some degree of similarity between the feasts, although, of course, of all of them, the Passover feast perhaps was the most important and certainly the first. And I would suggest that probably this is the reason why John Calvin, in his ecclesiastical ordinances uh, for the city of Geneva, after giving a great deal of thought as to how frequently the Lord's uh, Supper may best be observed, 
uh, having toyed with the idea of weekly communion uh, and then considered other alternatives, finally hit upon seasonal communion, that is, communion for each of the four seasons during the year uh, as being perhaps the best way in which to go to the Lord's table. Not, of course, that it is a matter of uh, um, overriding importance as to whether we go to the Saviour's table once a year, as the Scots sometimes did, twice a year, as the Scots did in their cities, but not in the country districts, four times a year, which is what Calvin finally um, settled for, as too did John Knox in Scotland, or perhaps more frequently than that, such as once every six weeks, and in some cases once a month, and in other cases more frequently. Just permit me to say, as an ex-Roman Catholic that used to go to the communion table uh, a couple of times a week, at least, uh, when I was a small boy, uh, that uh, I still battle against the notion of over-frequent usage of our Saviour's table. I think it is uh, too much of a good thing, too often, and um, my going to communion in the Roman Church before I was seven and eight uh, I can honestly tell you today, looking back on it, really didn't do much good for my soul. Uh, I went to the communion table in the Roman Catholic Church far more frequently and far more often and far more regularly before I was eight years of age when I became an atheist than I've ever gone to the Saviour's table since becoming a Protestant at age 21. So I think what we need are not more communion services, such as daily communion, and a 5 o'clock Mass, a 6 o'clock Mass, a 7 o'clock Mass, and an 8 o'clock Mass. But I think that we need to prepare ourselves better for the Lord's table. And for the reasons I've given, my own personal preference is for quarterly communion. Uh, and uh, it is approximately one season since I last went to the Saviour's table and I have been endeavouring to prepare my heart this week for the Lord's table. It's also the practice that I am used to since the time I first became a Calvinist. To be sure, the matter of frequency is to be determined in each congregation by the session of elders as they think is best for the congregation concerned. But I want to emphasise that whether we come to the Lord's table seasonally, which is my preference, or whether we come to the Lord's table annually, uh, as was done in the country districts of Scotland under Knox, or twice a year, as was done in the cities of, of Scotland under Knox, or quarterly, as was finally done by Calvin in Geneva, and is still the uh, preponderant usage of the Presbyterian and Reformed churches ever since the Reformation, or whether we come to the Lord's table more frequently than quarterly, I think it is so important that we have this time of preparation between the preparatory service, which we have here tonight, and the action service, so that we become aware of the meaning of this leaven and the need for us to have unleavened lives, particularly before we pick up the holy bread and the holy wine. Now that was not the sermon, that was the introduction. Now here follows the sermon.
from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There was a problem in this Gentile Christian church at Corinth. And the problem was sexual immorality. There were other problems too. Vexatious litigation, dragging one another unnecessarily before the law courts. But the one mentioned here in connection with communion, uh, with the uh, Passover feast of the Lord, uh, held as holy communion in that congregation, was sexual immorality. And it was bad, folks. Look at it. Paul says, It is reported commonly that there is fornication amongst you. Fornication is a general word meaning sexual uncleanness, um, whether a person is married or not. A particular, particular subspecies of fornication is adultery, whether single adultery, when one of the parties concerned is unmarried, or double adultery, when both of the parties concerned are married. Uh, so, to be sure, double adultery is worse than single adultery, and single adultery is worse than fornication amongst unmarried persons. Um, and then he specifies the kind of sexual immorality he's talking about, a particularly hideous kind. Such fornication, he says in verse 1, as is not so much as mentioned amongst the Gentiles, amongst the pagans, namely, that someone should have his father's wife. So we're talking of incestuous uh, adultery and probably incestuous single adultery. I don't know that we should conclude from this that uh, the father of the wife concerned was still alive. That could be the case, but perhaps the more natural interpretation is that there was a brother in this congregation of Christians uh, who was either sleeping uh, with his dead father's wife as if uh, he, the son, uh, was the husband or um, the other possibility uh, is that he was sleeping with his own stepmother which, of course, is also prohibited in terms of the Levitical legislation of uh, Leviticus chapters 18 and 20. Think of it, incestuous adultery within the church of the Lord Jesus. Now you may say, ah, oh, but that was just one person in the church and nobody else knew about it, so you can't blame the session. Oh, yes, you could blame the session because, you see, this matter had become public. Look what Paul says in verse 2. And you people, ye, uh, King James English, y'all, modern Dixie language, uh, meaning more than one person, y'all have become puffed up. Far from humbling themselves, uh, the congregation were bragging about uh, this uh, wonderful freedom which they felt they had in Christ. Free from the law. Oh, happy condition. We'll sin all we want because there's always remission. Antinomianism, folks. And Paul says, you people have become puffed up about this awful incidence of incestuous adultery in your midst. And you 
have not rather mourned. You should have torn your hearts and your garments, uh, realizing ikabod, uh, taken away, uh, is the glory of the church as the new Israel. You should rather have mourned. You should have shed your tears as a church that this thing was happening in your midst when you learned about it publicly. But you became puffed up rather than repent. For he who has done this deed should be taken away from your midst. In other words, there should have been an application by the session of church discipline to deal with this hideous transgression in the bosom of the people of God. That's what should have occurred, and it hadn't occurred. And not only that, but they'd allowed this wretched man, and I suppose also his stepmother, to come to our Savior's table, the Christian Passover. Do you see what's involved? The leaven had not been removed from the congregation because they had not adequately prepared themselves before coming to use the sacrament. And then Paul says in verse 3, Truly, as someone that was absent in body, yet present in, the, in, in spirit, I have already passed judgment, says Paul, as though I was present concerning the man that has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you have gathered together, and my spirit too, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, I have already judged, says Paul, verse 5, to deliver such a person to Satan. Those who keep on committing such hideous sins, who are communicant members of the church, should cease to be communicant members of the church for as long as they continue in such hideous sins. They should be removed from the body of Christ. And until such time as they might repent, they need to be delivered over unto Satan. There needs to be a public announcement after the session has scrutinized it that this person is found guilty of what he is rumored to have done, if that be the verdict, and then the table is to be closed against that person even if he had been admitted as a communicant, until such time, let us hope that he repents. And if he never repents, he should never ever be given the Lord's Supper again for the rest of his life. Notice though in verse 5, the, the um, aim of delivering such a person to Satan is for the destruction of his flesh, for the burning off of, the, of this man of this awful fleshly, carnal sin, not so that the man should end up going to hell, but rather so that his spirit might yet be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now folks, if a session of Christ's church becomes negligent uh, to close the table against uh, members of the congregation that fall into such hideous sins which become public, the sad thing is not only that the uh, ire and the wrath of God can be aroused against the whole session and the whole congregation for not taking the appropriate action, but also the man that is committing this hideous sin, in this case the sin 
of incestuous adultery slips down into hell itself. And if we love one another, we do not want to see one another go to hell as a result of not rebuking one another when a rebuke might arrest a person's descent from the church visible into hell. So, were I there, says Paul, I would deliver such a person unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that the spirit might be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. And then he says to the whole congregation, under the rule of the elders, your boasting is not good. Don't you people know that just a little leaven keeps on leavening the whole lump? Don't you know if you permit just a little bit of leaven, a symbol of sin, into the dough, that the taste and the flavor of the leaven goes right through the whole dough? And this is what happens in these churches. One person begins with immorality, and it's not checked. Very soon the other people think, well, if he can get away with it, why can't I? And uh, you don't have to train a person to be, uh, to be immoral. It comes naturally. You have to train a person to fight against uh, immorality. And so, in order to prevent the whole congregation, step by step, sliding into a state of carnality, it is absolutely essential for the officers of the church, when such matters as this become public, to take appropriate uh, action and to screen our Savior's table. Otherwise, this yeast of sin goes through the whole, the whole piece of dough, and then nobody prepares themselves aright to come to the Savior's table. And, Paul says a little later, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11, the wrath of God becomes kindled against the entire congregation. So the remedy is given in verse 7. Therefore, you need to purge out the old leaven so that you may become a new lump of dough even as you are unleavened. What he's saying is this. Through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, you who were full of the leaven of sin have become unleavened you have been cleansed, you have become made pure through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well then, how can you possibly allow yourselves to slip back into these hideous sins and so flippantly come to his table which celebrates his death? You see the argument. Therefore, you must purge out the old leaven, again, leaven, being a symbol of sin, to remind us that it's the sin that needs to be purged out of our lives so that you may become a new lump of dough, even as you are unleavened, because Christ died for you in, in, in theory, all of your sins have been taken away and purged from you. It's so out of character then that a Christian should backslide into these hideous sins and often sins worse than even the Gentiles, the pagans themselves, commit. For even Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Ah, that is what has made us unleavened. The death of the Lord Jesus Christ, our great Passover lamb, when he was sacrificed on the cross of Calvary and sacrificed for us 
That is where we became cleansed of our sin through the precious blood of Jesus. And therefore there can be no going back to the old ways of sin. Still less can there be sliding into deeper sins after our conversion uh, than we had ever committed before our conversions. And so Paul says in verse 8, Therefore, let us keep the feast. Let us keep the feast of the Passover, the Lord's Supper as the Christian Passover, not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now we begin to see that it's not only sexual immorality uh, that we are to be purged of before we come to the Lord's table, but also the leaven of malice. The leaven of malice. I could tell you a wonderful story at this point of my neighbor in Australia uh, who uh, emailed me through my daughter this very morning and asked forgiveness of, uh, of, uh, of sins toward me. Uh, and of course I will copiously forgive him. It took a stroke and sending him to hospital for several weeks to bring about this wonderful change in his life. And uh, he apparently a couple of days ago, according to the email I got this morning, he came round looking for me when he was out of hospital, said he realizes his time is short, he's got to make things right with the Lord. Uh, and he apologized profusely to my wife and my daughter, whom he has been snubbing for years, simply because he's taken a dislike for me, to me, and he wanted to know, where's Nigel? Well, the email says, my wife says, he's in America now. Well, please get hold of Nigel and tell him I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I realized in hospital that my time is short and that I've got to make things right. Will you please let Nigel know in America, please, will he forgive me? Well, of course I'll forgive him. But the sad thing is that this fellow who lives next door to me is an Anglican. Uh, and he goes to church every Sunday and probably goes to communion every Sunday being an Anglican or Episcopalian. And he should not ever have gone to communion with these thoughts in his heart, which not I allege, but he himself now feels uh, are inappropriate. Now he wants to make them right. You see, it's not just sexual immorality we're talking about. Do you greet one another? Do you love one another? Or do you ignore one another and wish that some of you would go away and go worship someplace else. Really, if you've got those kind of attitudes, you really are not fit at this point in time to come to the Lord's table until you've made matters right with your Christian brother or even with your non-Christian neighbor. You don't need to be malicious towards people who are very malicious toward you. So, let us not keep the feast with the leaven of malice and wickedness. What is the leaven of wickedness? Wickedness is any transgression of any one of the Ten Commandments. From idolatry right through to covetousness. We'll come back to those two sins in particular. That negatively, we've got to get rid of transgressions of the Ten Commandments in our life. That's why we have a preparation service, so that we come as law-abiding citizens of the kingdom of God to our Savior's Passover table. But positively, we are to keep the feast 
with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Let us be sincere. Let us not con one another. Let's not paste a smile on our face when we approach a Christian we don't like and say, How are you, brother? Are you doing well? The Lord is blessing. That's as phony as these tele-evangelists. Rather frown if you have to. I'm sorry, I frown all the time. I was born with a frown. But I'll tell you, I'd rather frown at people in sincerity than I'd want to paste a smile on my face if I don't really love people. That's putting on a mask. That's making yourself look different from the way that you are. With the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, and we have got to keep the truth in love. Yes, we must be loving, but we've got to be truthful. And if we are truthful with one another, we're going to have to level with one another and say, look, I love you as, as a Christian, but my dear brother, the truth of the matter is... You need to make this matter right. Not so much toward me, but toward some other member of the church that I think you are wronging with your attitude. You borrowed five dollars from someone five years ago. He's asked you to give it back. You've said, oh yes, tomorrow. And you've never repaid that five dollars or fifty dollars or fifty thousand dollars. Yet you have the arrogance to come to the Savior's table. Theft, you see. It's, it's not right. It's not truthful. Now, says Paul in verse 9, I did write to you people in another epistle not to associate with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, uh, or otherwise you'd have to hop off this planet to get away from the fornicators of this world. Uh, I also wrote to you previously not to associate with those who are covetous. Tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet. Or those who are extortioners, those who break the Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not steal, for extortion is a subspecies of theft. Or with idolaters, with those who break the First and or Second Commandments. What he's saying is that if Christians, if the Lord's people break the Tenth or the Eighth or the First or Second Commandments, they should just as much be prohibited from coming to the Passover table of the Lord as if they obviously and hideously break the seventh commandment by committing incestuous adultery. But now I have written to you, verse 11, not to keep company if any man that is called a brother, that's the operative word, if a person is a member of the church and therefore alleges that he is our brother or would pass as our brother. If such a man who is supposed to be our brother is a fornicator, uh, seventh commandment, or covetous, tenth commandment, or an idolater, first or second commandment, or a railer, one who wishes he could kill people with words and backstabbing and slander, sixth commandment, or a drunkard, one who slowly puts himself to death by imbibing too much liquor, or an extortioner, the eighth commandment again, with such a person who claims to be a brother, you are not to eat. And certainly not to eat the Passover of the Lord's Supper. How can you? This needs to be purged out of, 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 of the church. For what have I to do, says Paul, to judge also those who are outside of the church? Why don't you people pass judgment on those who are inside of the church? 
there's not a great deal that we as church people can do to stop the murders and the thefts being perpetrated by the non-church people. But there's a lot that we can do and need to do to stop uh, murdering people's character and stealing from one another and stealing from God by withholding the tithe within the Christian church. And here action needs to be taken lest we defile the Lord's table or uh, permit it to be defiled by a member of the congregation. Those who are outside of the church, God judges, says Paul. Verse 13. Therefore, conclusion, you need to put away from amongst yourselves that wicked person. Friends, I have finished preaching. But how stands it with your life and mine? Yes, we have all professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. Uh, those of us who will be coming to the Lord's table tomorrow uh, have all been catechized, I take it, and we have professed, we understand how this is the Lord's table. And we have, at some point in the past, uh, satisfied the session that admitted us to the Lord's table that we can discern. This is not just any old meal. This is the Lord's table. But how stands your life today after being admitted to the table? Is there in your life the sin of fornication or the sin of covetousness or the sin of drunkenness or the sin of railing and backstabbing and, and, and sniping or extortion Stealing from God or from your fellow Christian or even from an unbeliever? Are you an idolater? And know that covetousness is idolatry according to what the Apostle Paul writes to the Colossians. Well, well, there is yet time. If you are guilty of any of those hideous sins of breaking any one of the Ten Commandments, will you not re-repent even tonight and ask God to forgive your new sins afresh so that as a cleansed person uh, that leaven can be removed from your life between now, the time of the commencement of the feast and the action service tomorrow afternoon. And dear friends, if you're not prepared to make that uh, special prayer of new repentance, I must solemnly warn you, for Christ's sake and the sake of your own soul, rather not to participate of the holy meal that will be set out here in this place tomorrow. But if you do repent, and if in addition to repenting, you come to the table with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, then are you welcome indeed. If you're baptized if you've been catechized, and if this time tomorrow you are truly at peace once again with God and with your neighbor. May God have mercy upon us and bend our hearts to submit to his holy 